the difference between the examples you're giving, Matt, and the one we're talking about here today is that um, at Christmas, Jesus isn't born again. So we are during Advent, we're entering into that in the sense that we're contemplating that deeply and we're looking forward to Jesus being born, who we know has been born. And, and at Easter, the same thing. We're looking forward to him being raised from the dead, but we don't believe he's actually raised from the dead again. And the right, like right, think about it. You know, one the of the, 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 in the mass, we're saying that it is, uh, it's becoming real. Go ahead. Yeah. Matt. And we're going back to, even with that, we're going back to the same thing, but just to, to, to tip back off, I mean, what's one of the accusations, the anti-Catholics, um, that we probably even bought into a little bit ourselves is that the, the, the Catholics re-sacrifice, re-sacrifice right. Christ at the mass. Right. Uh, imagine like the thought, like if we would ever say, well, Catholics just like, you know, rebirth baby Jesus every year because the first birth of baby right. Jesus wasn't good. <laughs> like it's it's a preposterous thing to think about if you were to apply it that way. So that's it, obviously yes. not what Catholics are doing. Right. It's much right. it's much more yeah, complex I, than that. Hello and welcome to another salty episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleagues Ken Hensley, who was a Baptist pastor for many years, Kenny Burchard, who was a Pentecostal pastor for many years, uh, and now we're all Catholic. And that's kind of the purpose behind this series is to explain um, how that came to be. Uh, we're in an ongoing series about the Mass, uh, the Catholic Mass, the Catholic form of worship, and how different that was than how we grew up. Uh, when it came to what we experienced on Sunday mornings. But if you want to connect with us and our work, uh, see more episodes, go to chnetwork.org. Uh, if you want to join an online community where we are actively involved in having discussions with people who are in the process of asking these questions, much like we once were, go to community.chnetwork.org. You can also um, check out uh, ways to support us by going to chnetwork.org slash donate. Ken, Kenny, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm trying to. Con I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm trying to maintain and stop laughing. We were telling all these jokes before we started recording, and you <laughs> yeah. and you got me going. And so when you said Ken Hensley, he was a Baptist pastor, and then you said Kenny Burchard, I thought you were going to say he was a raving lunatic for 20 years, <laughs> but instead you said Pentecostal, which is similar but not exactly the same. I mean, that, our, our Baptist friends always uh, <laughs> would have seen those would have seen those as. Um, synonyms can yeah so. <laughs> i mean well, we're especially all the pre especially presbyterians we're all on a journey <laughs> we're all on a journey anyway True. anyway i'm cleaning up my act doing, no more laughing doing great i'm here and doing yeah, fine exactly all right well good because we have some big words to dig into today so mm -hmm. um where we left off last time around we've been going through the mass stage by stage and we're spending uh, for every like two minute segment of the mass, we're spending an hour discussing it. Uh, so we get we get to this big fancy Catholic word called anamnesis or anomnis. It depends on how good you are at Greek, the way you pronounce that word. Um, but this is where we're basically bringing it all kind of around. Uh, and this is the remembrance part. This is how Catholics think of what Jesus is saying when he says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, interestingly enough, um, as outsiders, we would have all thought, well, the Catholic Church just like adds a bunch of junk that's not in the Bible and 
you know, they just do their own thing and they've like created all these trappings around it. This is a point, Kenny, um, where this this piece of the scriptures, this command from Christ, the Catholic Church actually kind of just goes word for word the way it's sort of spelled <laughs> out in the Bible <laughs> when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, um, this do and remember to me. So if you could um, set the stage for us here. Yeah, absolutely. We're, like you said, we're at the word anamnesis. We're at this point in the celebration of the rite um, where we need to unpack not only the word, but the, the word signifies what's happening. Jesus is being remembered. Uh, and that's the word anamnesis. It's the word in the, in the original text where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, anamnesis. And, um, so where we want to go today is we want to, of course, begin with some pre-Catholic reflection. And I think Ken will probably provide the most material for that part of our discussion. But then we want to dig into the biblical and theological insights underneath um, what Catholics mean by this word remembrance and what the Bible means by this word remembrance. So we want to then look at the rest of the liturgy of the Eucharist. We have to kind of walk through, well, then where do we go after the anamnesis? And hopefully you can help us with that part, uh, Matt. And then we want to look at, as we always do in these episodes, some of the ancient voices that spoke mm -hmm. of what was happening in the ancient liturgy and how those early Christians understood communion, that Jesus really is present to his church in the Eucharist. So hopefully those are um, those markers can get us through everything that we want to talk about today. All right. Well, this is a great opportunity for us to, before we dive into where the Catholic Church stands on all this and has stood for a couple of millennia, um, to go back into some of our experiences of how we'd have thought of this term, this idea of what it mean means to remember. I remember in all the churches that I ever did, if they had like a communion table that they brought out, you know, it very often mm -hmm. said this do in remembrance of me across the front of it, right? So this yep. is a phrase that mattered to us. Uh, but I'm going to tap into Ken Hensley's experience as a Baptist pastor. When you said um, those words that Jesus had said, which is do this mm -hmm. in remembrance of me, like what was going through your mind? What were you doing with that idea of remembrance. Yeah, our, our table had it carved into the wooden table. Do this in remembrance of me. And See, ours was when, this do. This is this is another poll oh, yeah, we had to take. This. It's like, well, ha, mine do this versus this do. This do. Yeah. Mine, my, mine might have been this do, and I'm not remembering it right. I, my remembrance is not correct. Um, when Kenny first <laughs> asked me this question, really, I was taken back a little bit when he said, what did you mean? What did you mean back when you were Baptist? What did you mean when you said that you were remembering? Uh, what do you think is meant by do this in remembrance of me? What did I think I was doing? I, I guess I want to plow into it briefly. What did I think I was doing when I said that I was remembering Jesus's broken body and his shed blood for me and for the sins of the world? Now, I wasn't there when Jesus died. And so I didn't think I was remembering in the sense of someone who's actually been there, you know, okay? You know, I didn't think that I was uh, remembering something I'd actually seen. Uh, how can you say you remember something when you weren't present for the experience? And you pointed out to me, Kenny, and I think it's, it's, it's an interesting thought. 
It doesn't make any sense, for instance, to say, oh, I remember when my parents were married. Or, oh, yeah, I, I remember clearly when, when President Lincoln, you know, delivered the Gettysburg Address. I wasn't there. And so you can't remember something you didn't experience in that sense. So obviously I wasn't remembering right. Jesus' death in the sense that I was there and I, could, and, I, and I could witness it for you. So it was more like this. When I said I was remembering, um, and, and I thought when Jesus said, do this in remembrance, I was thinking about what had occurred in the past. I was thinking about what I believed had occurred historically in the past. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed in the past. And I was simply using the word remember um, because it's in the past. <laughs> I was thinking about these realities and using the word remember simply because I was thinking about things that have happened, things that are in the past. In mm -hmm. other words, the Lord's Supper, or to say it the other way around, the Lord's Supper was not for me uh, an occasion in which something happened, uh, in, in which something actually happened in the present, except to say that in the present, I was thinking about what had happened in the past. In, in the, past. The, only, the only thing that was happening when I was celebrating the Lord's Supper was that I was thinking now about these truths, about these realities that had happened in the past. And I was praying and I was worshiping and thanking God for them. That's it. Yeah. And to, we were joking about this as we were uh, planning the episode. Um, it, in some ways, uh, it's not dissimilar to the idea of like a Bob Hope Memorial golf tournament, right? Like, remember what a great mm -hmm. guy Bob was? Uh, remember how he created this foundation <laughs> to do these things? Uh, what if we could like talk about the stories of him and like think about him and do stuff that we know that he would love, you know, I, I mean, right, right. obviously as Christians, we believe that Christ is present among us in a unique way. We believe that as Protestants, but we didn't believe that this particular thing that we were doing made him present. It was just another way yeah. to acknowledge something that, that was kind of, well, it was just, it's just a difficult thing to put your right. finger on. And I think it's difficult I think it was difficult for many of us at the time to put our finger on what we were doing. I think it's difficult for a lot of Protestants uh, in that world now to put their finger on exactly what it is that that's that's going on there. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I think what Ken said about <clears throat> remembrance um, primarily happening in the mind uh, is a good is a good sort of backdrop to maybe how lots of evangelicals think about it. We're, you know, commemorating or memorializing this past event. I, re I remember, um, I think I mentioned to you guys this charismatic Episcopal priest who started helping me with sacramental theology. And one of the things he poked on um, with us when he was trying to help us with remembrance is he said, remember when Jesus died on the cross? And everyone said, yeah. He said, you do? You do? You were there? you remember that? Like, how old are you? And we all kind of laughed. He said, you don't remember it because you weren't there. So you need a bigger understanding of remember than the one that you have. Somehow, Jesus said that this was to be done in remembrance of him. So we want to we try to unpack that now with our Catholic uh, understanding. And, and I want to begin, if I can, with a text of Scripture that's really helpful to me. It's very familiar probably to most people listening to this if they have an evangelical background. And that's Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, in which Jesus has just given the great commission to his disciples, to the apostles, and he ends with this. 
and I am with you, or depending if you have a King James Bible, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, well, that, that sounds nice. How? How, Jesus, are you with the church until the end of the age? And so, as Catholics, we believe, along with our evangelical and Protestant brothers and sisters, that Jesus is with us in the in the indwelling presence of Christ. We are, like our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord dwells in us by faith, and all of that is true. Uh, we, we accept that as, as true as Catholics. But, but, we believe that the promise, I am with you always to the end of the age, is fully filled up, filled up all the way or fulfilled at the Eucharistic table more than any other way in which Jesus is with us. And, and I would even go further uh, and say that, you know, by way of implication, because that's true, um, because Jesus really is present to his church in the celebration of the Eucharist, it's impossible to be closer to Christ in any other way than this. Uh, and why? And it's because what Jesus said the Eucharist is, it is his body and it is his blood. And we participate in that through what Jesus said, we translate in English, remembrance. But the original language is anamnesis or anamnesis. And we're going to hear in a moment that there may actually be better ways of rendering that word than just the, the word remember. And so we want to try to get the full impact of what Jesus is saying uh, to his church. And I'm going to lean pretty heavily, guys, on a book that was helpful to me in shaping my Catholic understanding of anamnesis and its place in the liturgy and, um, and the way that Jesus is fulfilling his promise to be with us to the end of the age. And it's the, the book Letter and Spirit by Scott Hahn and just some readings from uh, the sixth chapter. And here's the title of the, the sixth chapter. Before I read, I want to chat about it a little bit. But <clears throat> the title of the, the sixth chapter is The Persistence of Memory, Anamnesis, and Actualization. Anamnesis and Actualization. This is kind of where we're headed with the Catholic understanding of anamnesis. And again, before I read, just one more thought. You can hear that word anamnesis. You can set it next to another English word that we use all the time, amnesia. Amnesia, anamnesis. The second part of both words is exactly the same. The first part is different. Amnesia is without memory. It means that you, you, you are no longer able to recall in your mind, your actions or relationships, that you have had anything to do with something that's happened to you. Whereas anamnesis is the opposite of that. It's the, the capacity to totally recall something that you have personally participated in and that you're part of to the point where it's part of your own memory. So these are those two words kind of set next to each other. But before I read from the sixth chapter, anything you guys want to say before I dive in? I just want to call out how weird this is. 
um, and how weird it was when I started to experience it as a Catholic because it it happens in this fulfilled way in the Eucharist in the way that yes. you're about to describe. But it also happens a whole bunch of other ways throughout the liturgical calendar that were very strange yes. to my experience. So um, weekend after Thanksgiving, turns out we're going to live as though Jesus has not been born yet. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, we're going to talk about Jesus, you know, being born four weeks from now. Like, we all know he was born like 2,000 years ago. Like, why are we talking about it like it's not happened? And that's what Advent is, right? Or in mm-hmm. Lent, leading up to Holy Week, we're like, well, you know, um, we're we're leading up to when Jesus will rise from the dead. I'm like, Jesus rose from the dead, man. He rose like 2,000 right, years. Right. Like, why are we talking about it as though it's not happened yet? So... This kind of thinking is like built into the whole liturgical calendar of getting us to kind of like live these cycles and 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 even Catholics yes. will talk about stuff that has clearly happened two right. millennia mm-hmm. ago as though it has not happened. Um that is I think an interesting sort of backdrop and like a language thing to to mm-hmm. sort of think about as we're thinking about like how this all mm-hmm. gets fulfilled in the mass. Yeah, and the only thing is the difference between the examples you're giving, Matt, and the one we're talking about here today is that um, at Christmas, Jesus isn't born again. So we are during Advent, we're entering into that in the sense that we're contemplating that deeply and we're looking forward to Jesus being born, who we know has been born. And, And at Easter, the same thing. We're looking forward to him being raised from the dead, but we don't believe he's actually raised from the dead again. And the difference Right, like think about it. You know, one of the differences in the mass, we're saying that it is, uh, it's becoming real. Go ahead. Yeah, and we're going back to even with that, we're going back to the same thing. But just to 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 tip back off, I mean, what's one of the accusations the anti-Catholics um, that we probably even bought into a little bit ourselves is that the 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 Catholics re-sacrifice, re-sacrifice right. Christ at the mass. Right. Uh, imagine like the thought, like if we would ever say, well, Catholics just like you know rebirth baby Jesus every year because the first birth of baby right. Jesus was a good like it's it's a preposterous thing to think about if you were to apply it that way so that's it, obviously yes. not what Catholics are doing it's right. much right. it's much more yeah, complex I, than that mm-hmm. it is and I think we can clear it up uh, we're just gonna fix it all guys uh, but no I think we can help maybe bring some clarity through this concept of anamnesis and what it means inside of the worldview of the people that Jesus is talking to. These, by the way, would be um, 100% of them would be Jews who had spent their whole life celebrating the Passover, this memorial meal of the Passover, which we'll get into in a few minutes. But let me let me dive in, if I can, guys, yeah. do this six, a few little paragraphs from the sixth chapter of Scott Hahn's book, where he talks about Uh, anamnesis and actualization. I'll read now, quoting, What Jesus meant, and in fact what the rabbis meant by remembrance, was not a simple act of memory or imagination. R. L. Wilkin has perhaps best defined the term as to recall by making present. It is not merely a recollected thought, but a re-actualizing, a re-presenting what Christian tradition calls a real presence. Even in discussing the Jewish liturgy, however, another man he quotes here, Thurian, did not hesitate to call this process sacramental, in quotes. We'll, We'll put some quote marks up there. He writes, now quoting Thurian, as they ate, 
the Jews could relive mystically, sacramentally, the events of the deliverance and exodus from Egypt. They became contemporaries of their forefathers and were saved with them. The sacramental mystery belongs both to the Judaic and the Christian tradition and expresses the biblical meaning of the salvation history which was accomplished in time, once for all, but which is equally present at all times by word and sacrament. The Eucharist instituted in this tradition, in other words, he's saying Jesus is talking to people who get this. The Eucharist instituted in this tradition and context presents the same conception of the mystery of history, the mystery of salvation history present in the liturgical and sacramental action. Pause. Now, when you read that, when you read those paragraphs, Kenny, immediately what jumped out to me was a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 20, which I printed out here so that I can read it, um, because what that reminds me of is where we read in Deuteronomy, when your son asks you in time to come, and he's talking about the, the celebration, the annual celebration of the Passover, the memorial right. of the Passover. And, he, and in that context, he says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord our God has commanded you? Well, he's referring in this passage more generally to all the laws, but there's a parallel one when he's talking about specifically about the Passover only. That's included here. Mm-hmm. Um, when your son asks you in time to come, what will you say to your son? And here's the answer that Moses gives. This is what you should say mm-hmm. to your son. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. Notice, not 17 generations ago, our forefathers were slaves in Egypt, but we were Pharaoh's slaves right. in Egypt. And the Lord yes. and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. It's, it's, it's all, these, all this uh, you know, first-person mm-hmm. plural language. And mm-hmm. this might be, I mean, this might be a thousand years after the Exodus took place or 1500 years after the Exodus took place. And yet when your son says to you, what is the meaning of all this? What are we doing? Why are we doing? What does it mean? You're going to begin to answer by saying we were slaves in Egypt. God brought us out with a mighty hand. Um, he performed all these miracles against Pharaoh and his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land which he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as at this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So that's the passage that just jumped out when you were saying that, and I want to insert that. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before I keep trudging ahead, Matt, any anything there? I, I just want to say it sounds like, wow, this is this is a heavy thing to think about theologically, but this is how people talk about a lot of other areas of life. This is how Polish people talk about Polish history, right? This is how Irish people talk about Irish history. Mm-hmm. It happened to us. <laughs> it didn't happen to our ancestors. Mm-hmm. And honestly, right. this is how like sports fans talk about their team. Like I didn't 100%. live through what happened to the big red machine, but when I'm talking about what was happening with Tony Perez and Joe Morgan and Pete Rose and Johnny Bench, I talk about it as though it happened to me. 
right. as a Reds fan in right. the present day. Like, we talk about this in a lot of other ways, in a lot of other contexts. It's not insane yes. for us to talk about it this way. This That's because this is, this is an incredibly human way to think about these things. Yeah, like... Uh, it you really know, in the, is. Yeah, in the sports context, you know, like your favorite t- team 17 years ago got crushed, and you would still say, we got wiped out, <laughs> you know. We yeah, were you didn't play that for that day, team. Right? You weren't on the field, yeah. right? And actually, yeah. you got kids probably who point. have become huge fans who didn't live through that experience at all, right? But if they're fans, yes. they're going to say, it's, that it, happened to us. It's so good. And, and, and it really is part of human experience to see ourselves as part of a collective mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. along with those who we've never met and the, and the sacrament. The sacramental theology, the Eucharistic table, is the filling up of, of that intuition that we're capable of doing this in a way that surpasses any mm-hmm. other kind of thing we can imagine. Okay, so, and, and Han actually in the book, I'll just continue here, guys, he goes on to speak to this very thing, and I'll, I'll quote now. He says, the events of biblical history are irrevocably past. They are not repeated. Pause right there. So we aren't re-sacrificing Jesus at the Mass. Jesus was sacrificed. He was crucified on Calvary's Hill in a concrete moment of time in the past. We don't believe we're re-sacrificing Jesus, is what Han is saying here. We're not repeating it. They are, quoting again, however, repeatedly represented to believers in the liturgy not merely in a theoretical or propositional way, but in a way that is real and actual. Quote, what is the liturgy? Asked Blessed James Alberian. And then Alberian uh, answers, it is the actualization of the Bible. Cyprian Vagagini, I hope I said that right to my Italian brothers and sisters, if that's an Italian name, Cyprian Vagagini explained how the liturgy makes the events of salvation history, listen to this, immediate for the assembly and for the individual worshiper. Quoting him, the liturgy in some way is in sacramento. It makes present the whole mystery of Christ, sacred history, realizing it in individual souls. Now, I'm going to read a final quote from uh, Vagagini here, and then we'll, we'll pause for a little discussion. He says, Historical passages have not only the significance of a purely historical commemoration of the event, now past, to which they refer, but have also, in the liturgical action, the significance of a present application to each of the faithful of the value and redemptive fruit of that event. I feel like I need to say right here that it's as valuable or has the same worth in the present moment as it had when Jesus was dying on Calvary. That's kind of the idea that uh, Vagagini is is getting, you know, getting to here. Then moving on, Thus, the redemptive power of these events is, in its own way, newly actualized and prolonged because it is newly applied. Therefore, it can be said that these events in the liturgy are really reactualized. 
not as historical events, going down to the bottom of the quote, but rather mass renews in its own way, unbloodily, the sacrifice of Golgotha in the redemptive, in its redemptive power. Um, and, and that's what Vagagini is saying there is this past event continues to move through history by virtue of the sacraments and the liturgical action of the church. Let me pause there. So I just well, have uh, uh, two quick thoughts here. One is that um, there are some daughters of St. Paul watching who will, you know, they'll get us all if if I don't say it's James Alberione, right? Because, you know. Alberione. Yeah. Burchard is not an Italian name. You could be forgiven a lot of things here. But isn't this what we thought we were doing when we were praying the sinner's prayer? Not connecting to an idea, but connecting all the way back to Calvary. Right? Isn't that what the, those of us right. who came from evangelical traditions were believing that we were doing? And right. And and you know, too, you have to be doing that because it can't just be. Well, it's like for those old enough to uh, remember the Xerox generation. You know how like your teacher would hand you like a worksheet and it was copied, not off of an original worksheet, but like another worksheet that was itself a copy. By the time that it gets to you, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You barely read it, right? That's not what's happening. Obviously, every Christian believes right. that if the if the salvation is real, if the grace is real, then you're connecting not back, well, not to like a 55th hand telling of the gospel, but you're connecting back to Calvary. Every Christian exactly. believes this when they're talking about salvation. They just don't necessarily, as we, we didn't as evangelicals, connect it through liturgical action. Well, I, I feel like I want to say something, but I don't want to use a thousand words. I want to see if I can do it in like 37.2 <laughs> words. But um, what I, okay, what is happening here and what you're reading from Han's book and these people is they're doing a very deep dive on some things that we often state in simple terms. You know, we will often say mm -hmm. that in the mass, Christ's death and resurrect uh, that Christ's death is represented and applied. We'll say that. And what they're doing is taking the word represented and, and kind of digging down to the center of the earth, as it were, in terms of mm -hmm. me meaning. But I want to make sure to clarify this. I wouldn't want someone listening to think that what we have from what happened with the Jews in the old covenant, um, when they remembered right. the Passover, is this sort of like a continuum that just kind of like, you know, goes into the New Testament, right? It, like on a continuum line. No, there's a substantial difference. They are remembering. Yes, yes they may be placing themselves in it. Yea, they may, may be reactualizing for themselves by using terms like we were there, we were slaves, we were delivered. Um, but when we're talking about the mass, because of the miracle of the real presence, because of the miracle of yes. transubstantiation, we're talking about something that is, I just want to make sure that it's understood. We're talking about, mm -hmm. we're talking about something that is categorically different. We're not talking about, yes. well, the Israelites did it and we're doing the same thing a little bit more or something like that. Is that clear? Right. And and I believe that was 54.2 words, so I apologize. It, for that. Yeah. It, it is clear, and, I, and, and in a few minutes, I'll share, and, and we'll, we're going to make Seth do some heavy lifting by showing some pictures. Some We're going to do a little Sunday school here in a second. Okay. But yes, you're right, Ken, there's a filling up, a sacramental filling up yeah. that's not possible through the Passover, sacramental as that might, might be in some mm -hmm. ways. This is a convergence of heaven and earth mm -hmm. in ways that no other sacrament ever was before. 
let me read a final quote from from Scott Hahn, and then and then we'll keep plowing ahead here. So, quote the with all this in mind, quote the liturgy draws the believer into the drama of the divine economy, not as a spectator but as a participant. The stream of salvation history. Now he's going to use a word cascades from generation to generation through the course of divine liturgy. You could see in your mind a ripple effect. It's rippling out through history. Quoting again, the participant in the Passover must speak of the Exodus, not in the third person, but in the first person. It is because of that which the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, Exodus 13, verse 8. And then quoting the Haggadah, the Haggadah records a saying of the sages. In every generation, a Jew is obligated to regard himself as if he personally had gone out of Egypt. So we can notice what Hahn and the authors he's quoting here are doing with this sacramental theology and their understanding of the best way to think of anamnesis. It's their word, actualization. I've said total recall. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it isn't just a reflection that happens in the mind. It is when that which is in the past comes forward. So this isn't just retrospective. This is when the past becomes present. And so this is why the church always has, does now, and always will speak in terms of the real presence or that Jesus is truly present to his church in the Eucharist. We are participating in, we're having a koinonia, a communion in the actualization of the crucified and risen Jesus uh, in accordance, we need to say, with his own promise and his own words that he would be with us even to the end of the age. Now, before I share my Sunday school pictures, uh, you guys want to add anything? <laughs> okay. All right. So I have nothing. So, to so, so I haven't done this before, but I sometimes I th I think just a I little object. illustration. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to show you pictures now. So here's a picture uh, that that can help understand the the, the multidimensional sense in which we understand Eucharistic sacramental theology. So think of the terms that we we've, we've spoken about so far: the past, something's happened in the past, right? And then the, the future, which is where God is taking. All of creation, so, and then and then the present, kind of in the middle. But we've also talked about heaven, uh, God in heaven, and the church in heaven, and the church on earth. So what I want to share here that draws all this together is this Eucharistic theology that we believe and in which we worship is, if I can say it this way, the convergence of a cruciform, a, a cross-shaped reality that's based on the promise of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20 to be with his church. So we're saying, guys, because Jesus said, because our faith proclaims it, scripture proclaims it, that at the Eucharistic table, the past, what Jesus did on the cross, and the future, where Jesus is taking all of creation, which is in, into a heaven and earth sort of convergence, being brought back together again, is made present to the church on the Eucharistic table. But not only that, 
the things in heaven and God himself and the lamb standing as though he had just been slain, which is the image we see of Jesus in Revelation, and the whole church, the whole heavenly church, is joined with the earthly church at the Eucharistic table. So this is, our faith is that the past joins the future in the present, and heaven joins earth in the present at the Eucharistic table, and I'll say it this way, in in the body of Christ. Okay, stop right there because we, we got to unpack in the body of Christ in just a second. But you guys want to say anything uh, about this? Hey, the one again, thing I, I would object. just say, <clears throat> yeah, I don't object at all. But I, the one I'm thing joking. I was just going <laughs> to say is, is how Chesterton talks about um, the cross is this symbol that has like this sort of contradiction has at its center, mm -hmm. but can like extend in all directions without changing its fundamental shape. Uh, in some ways, there's this kind of extraordinary thing that the cross is the symbol of all this. When you look at the intersection of heaven and earth, you look at the intersection of past, present, and future, how it all has this axis. You even look at, um, you know, just, you know, what is what is it that is at the crossroads of the cross, right? It is Christ mm -hmm. himself um, bringing all things unto mm -hmm. himself. Um, mm -hmm. Isn't it interesting that that's the symbol of Christianity, not a circle, right? Um, right, right. It's, yes. it's right. a fantastic, yes. fantastic thing to reflect upon. Yeah, and what I was thinking when I saw your image was simply that a picture really is worth a thousand words. You look at that image with heaven and earth, with the past and the future, and you see Jesus in the middle there, and it, it tells the whole story. So very nice, mm -hmm. very nice. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, well, think about and, even, too, and, and like, the way that the body is is represented. Like, when you make the sign of the cross, from my head down past my heart to my stomach, from the left of me to the right, like, it's just, like, this is the, it's even bigger than the strike zone, man. I'm just saying, like, you're, you're encompassing basically all the parts that define what it means to be a human being as you make the sign yeah. of the cross. Well, absolutely. And and the, the last little phrase that I used, guys, uh, which will kind of be the segue into my picture, and then I need to stop talking and let Matt jump in here. But um, is that all of this happens, remember I said, all of this happens in the body of Christ. Uh, the, the truly present, the real presence of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus made present to his church. Now, the, the, so how we understand this happening as Catholics is that we accept everything that the New Testament says about the body of Christ. And it says at least three things about the body of Christ or speaks about the body of Christ in at least three ways, which we believe all happen, converge together at the Eucharistic table. The Bible speaks of the ecclesial body of Christ. That is the body of Christ that is the church in heaven and earth, the whole communion of saints, the people of God. That's constantly called the body of Christ in the New Testament. But we also know that the incarnate body of Christ, the flesh and blood body of Christ, the incarnate body of Christ lived and walked around on planet Earth and was crucified and buried and died and rose again on the third day and ascended the Father's right hand. So when we say body of Christ, we mean that. But the Bible also speaks of the Eucharist, the bread and wine, as the sacramental body of Christ. So this ecclesial body of Christ gathers together, guys, and is united 
to the life of the Trinity and communes with God through what was done in this incarnate body of Christ by eating and drinking the sacramental body of Christ. Well, where can we find all three of those um, overlapping, um, slamming into each other, being caught up into each other in a verse of Scripture? Well, we can. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 16 to 17. He uses all three body of Christ metaphors at the Eucharistic table when he says this, the cup of blessing. What's that? That's the sacramental body of Christ that we bless. We is the ecclesial body. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Well, that is the incarnate a crucified, resurrected, and ascended body of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So there he does all three again. Because, verse 17, the loaf of bread is one, we though many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So, so Paul is giving us in this text the sacramental theology of the body of Christ made present to the church through the word of Christ at the Eucharistic table that we accept and celebrate and proclaim as Catholic followers of Jesus. And that's where I'm going to (laughs) stop. So I have a quick question then, since you guys are both pastors, right? A Pentecostal and a Baptist. And, um, you know, you mentioned, Kenny, this connection between we're the body of Christ because we are Christians, right? Um, that Jesus yeah. himself walked around in a body on this earth that was crucified and resurrected, that body of Christ, and then, of course, the sacramental idea of the body of Christ. When you distributed communion as a four-square pastor, and Kenny, when, or Ken, when you distributed communion as a Baptist pastor, did you say the body of Christ? No. You So you did not, Kenny? No. I, I didn't. I I never, I never would have handed bread or or the juice, the grape juice, to somebody and said, "The body of Christ, the blood of Christ," because I didn't have a theology that would have permitted me to say such a thing about the bread and the wine. Yeah, so you were I too many moves theolo- far. Yeah, you too many moves away from your Methodist roots, right? You're that's that's why, because yeah, we did say it the- in our world. Oh, you did. I didn't have the theology to say it, but also I didn't hand it to anybody. It, it was given to uh, the deacons who then right. passed it out, and it was passed down the rows within the church. Yeah. And, right. And, and p- right. P- people were serving each other, so I wouldn't. Well, have it's not infrequent in my world for pe- for us to pass the tray too, but for people to pass the tray, say the body of Christ as they pass the tray. Oh, to really? One another. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we we never ever would have done that in our church. Yeah. I find that interesting. I just want to say, John Wesley was an Anglican, and so John Wesley came from a tradition that believed in Christ's real presence, slightly understood differently, but that believed in Christ's Mm -hmm. real presence. So it makes sense that the Methodists would retain more elements like that. Well, even as a Nazarene, right? right? But we're not—Nazarenes are are still less moves away from Methodism than than most. Um, But so as you were reading through, uh, Kenny, 1 Corinthians 10— Verses sixteen through seventeen, and and Paul's, I mean, depending on what what translation you grew up with, there there are various ways that people have kind of wrestled with this. I remember when I was first becoming 
Catholic and, and making my way, I was trying to figure out what Paul was saying in this. And I picked up a lot of translations. And I picked up, among others, your buddy and mine, the late Eugene Peterson's The Message. Um, there you go. The message. The message, right? Which is translation. <laughs> it's a paraphrase. Well, do you, you want to hear how yes, how is. Eugene Peterson translated this? And you're going to be fascinated by this. Sure. Okay. Okay. Sure. Let's let's hear it. Um, it is as though he knew that one day we'd record an episode of On the Journey and need to quote this. <laughs> this is so. Um, Saint Paul, according to the paraphrase of Eugene Peterson, says. When we drink the cup of blessing, aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread we break and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? Because there's one loaf, our manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified in him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. He raises us to what he is. That's basically oh. what happened and even in old Israel, those who ate the sacrifices offered on God's altar entered into God's action at the altar. I don't know if Eugene Peterson meant to do this. Eugene. But whoa. Good that's, job. That's what, the paraphrase. What, what, what denomination was he a part of or what theology? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot. I don't recall. Okay. Google it. <laughs> okay, Google it. I, 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 but I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds sounds like uh, Mr. Peterson's been reading some good sacramental theology there. So yeah, yeah, not not too shabby. I do not like paraphrases. I, I mean, I, I understand yeah, that whenever I. I understand that whenever I stood up to preach, I was in a sense paraphrasing the results of my study right. or what, what I thought was true. And when someone writes a commentary, they're paraphrasing, they're expanding on what they think right. is happening. But I don't like paraphrases because they're presenting it as though it's the Bible, as though it's a translation. Exactly. It's not a translation. Yeah. It's just somebody's it's somebody's thoughts about the Bible. But isn't it's, it interesting? It's just a commentary. Like Can, everywhere uh, yeah, else that yeah, Peterson it's interesting. It's interesting, Yeah, Peterson yes. goes and, and, and softens it and like yeah. abstracts it. Like here it comes yeah. to this passage and like bam. Um yeah, it's wild. Right. So moving on, um, to get us sort of through the where we are in the narrative of the Mass, right? So if you've been following along, once again, we've spent, you know, an hour on two minutes of the Mass. But um, you've got <laughs> the oblation, fancy word for, for offering, right? The offering of the bread and wine um, that are consecrated into the body and blood of Christ. You've got the intercessions, um, you know, there, there are prayers that go there. The doxology and the great amen, which is where everybody stands up, right? Uh, everybody stands up to say the amen together. Um, then we've got, of course, the Our Father, which is if you don't know anything that's going on at Mass, chances are you know that part, even as a visitor. Um, you've got the sign of peace. This is not a mandatory piece of the Mass, right? Pun intended, but it's a it's a piece that comes, pun intended, uh, right there after the Lord's Prayer. Um, you've got the fraction rite, which is where um, the priest, uh, you know, breaks the bread. Uh, formally, the on you stay. The this is behold, you know, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Um, then the proclamation, right? So once you hear Lamb of God, at the end of that, everybody kneels, and then the priest holds up. The Eucharist says, Behold the Lamb of God, um, who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, and then we respond, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word, um, and my soul shall be healed. Um, the Domine non sum dignus, which was, I think, probably the thing that hit me the hardest the first time I you know, went to Mass and started to realize oh, what was happening. Um, and then uh, the reception of communion, and that's an important thing too, 
Um, I would have referred to in common parlance growing up, uh, taking communion. Uh, but in Catholic church, you don't take communion, you receive communion, um, which is, I think a very interesting and fascinating distinction. And then, uh, then the prayers after communion, which, um, very often are, are private, um, silent, solemn things. And, and so, uh, those are that's kind of where where it goes from here. Those are those are some of the the pieces, and we're going to get into more of those and dig into them a little bit more. Um, but in the meantime, this is a part of the episode where we like to say this is not something that was invented in the Middle Ages. This has precedent going back to the beginning. Yeah, so I know, you know Ken, Matt, you've got some stuff from that. You know, Matt, when you were saying that we just spent two hours on or, or whatever on two minutes of the mass, then I feel a little bit when we're just sort of reading off the other things that happen after that. that well, it's we, a preview. That we, it's a teaser. Yeah, that, right, that we need to go back and, and we need to explain a bit more. And we'll do that in the next episode and the next episodes as we, as we conclude this series on the Mass. Um, yeah, what I want to do here at the end is what I've done previously, and that is simply um, read a couple of ancient sources to, to um, remind ourselves, a non <laughs> to remind ourselves that this is not something that was made up, made up in the 13th century or the 14th century um, or anything like that. So first of all, here's a quotation, very famous one from St. Justin Martyr from his first apology. Now this is written sometime around 150 AD. And so this is very, very much representative of what the church believed at that time, because the things that Justin Martyr says, it's easy to find many other people saying similar things at the same time. But, but here it is from the first apology. This food is amongst us called Eucharist, whereof no one may partake except he who believes that what is taught by us is true and has been washed in the labor, which is for the remission of sins and for regeneration, talking about baptism, and who lives as Christ has delivered. For we do not receive it, that is the, the Eucharist, as common bread or as common drink, but in, what, but in the same way that Jesus Christ our Savior, being through the word of God incarnate, that is having been made incarnate by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. In the same way then, so also have we, we, we have been taught that the food over which thanksgiving has been made by the prayer of the word, which is from him, from which food our blood and flesh are by transmutation nourished, is the flesh and blood of him, the incarnate Jesus. Okay, kind of a convoluted language a little bit, but all of the elements are there is the thing I want to emphasize to you, Matt and Kenny and those listening. All the elements are there. This food that is called Eucharist, it's not just to be received by anyone and everyone. It's only received by those who believe that what we teach is true. Um, those who have been washed with the washing of regeneration, which is an obvious reference to baptism in this ancient writing. And then those who are living as Christ commands, which reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says that you need to examine yourself before you receive communion um, to make sure that you ought to be receiving communion. And so all of that is there. And, and, and the reasoning given by uh, Justin Martyr is that it, the reason is that we do not receive these as common bread and drink or as common food. And then he says, but just like Jesus was made incarnate by the word of God, just like the second person of the blessed Trinity 
became man by the word of God. He says that this same food by the prayer of thanksgiving is made into the Eucharist and our bodies are nourished by it. I love that part, from which food our blood and flesh are trans by are by transmutation nourished. This is the flesh and blood of him, the incarnate Jesus. So there's Justin Martyr. And then a final quotation. This is from the great Saint Augustine. This is from a homily that he preached around 393 AD um, for the Easter Vigil Mass. And this is what he said. We firmly believe, brethren, that the Lord has died for our sins. All of that happened once and for all. There's the past again that you emphasized, Kenny. As you know well enough, and yet we have the liturgical solemnities which we celebrate as during the course of the year we come to the date of particular events. Between the truth of the events, that is in the past, the truth of these events, and the solemnities of the liturgy which we are we're celebrating in the present, there is no contradiction, Augustine says. As if the latter were a lie or just sort of a a make-believe. The historical truth Mm -hmm. is what happened once for all, but the liturgy makes those events always new for the hearts that celebrate them with faith. The historical truth shows us the events just as they happened, but the liturgy, while not repeating them, celebrates them and presents them, prevents them from being forgotten. Thus, on the basis of historical truth, we say that Easter happened once only and will not happen again. But on the basis of the liturgy, we can say that Easter happens every year. Thanks to the liturgy, the human mind reaches the truth and proclaims its faith in the Lord. There you have it. Kenny, I hand it back to you for any closing words. Yeah, I just, uh, I I like what St. Augustine says about um, this, uh, in the middle there, it says celebrates them and prevents them from being forgotten. Very interesting. Uh, he, he prevents ecclesial amnesia. That, th- that would be our separation from what happened on Calvary or in some way disconnecting ourselves from it. This is what happens when someone has amnesia. You can tell them, oh, you, you were born on this day, you got married on this day, you went to this junior high, and they'd say, that never happened to me. So they would disconnect themselves uh, from their own history in some very real way. And Augustine is saying, we celebrate the liturgy <clears throat> to prevent that amnesia, not just the amnesia of the mind, but our own real participation in what God has done in history. So anamnesis being uh, the solution to amnesia. And it's just incredibly, incredibly beautiful. Yeah, so many thoughts come to mind. Uh, You know, think about all the things that it's important for us to remember about our own histories, about our own families, about our own national origins. Um, I mean, think about like if you're the descendant of slaves, how many generations go by before you're like, yeah, that's not important anymore for us to remember, right? Like these are there are so many things in our lives that like are so intrinsic to us, and and we think about them as though they have happened to us, right? Because they happened to our ancestors. Well, this is something that affects everybody's ancestors of every tribe and tongue and nation for all eternity, right? Um, so why would we not think about this in an elevated um, and special way. 
uh, and as as Augustine says, right, and on the basis of historical truth, it happened once. On the basis of the liturgy, it happens all the time, <laughs> right? So exactly, um, yeah, exactly. Amen. Powerful stuff. Well, we're not done yet. We're getting closer to the end, uh, and hopefully, this has helped bring some things. <laughs> Uh, into into focus. If you're struggling with what's going on at Mass and why yeah. Catholic worship is different than perhaps the worship that you're used to in whatever uh, kinds of congregations you've been a part of, uh, you can go back and watch previous episodes uh, at chnetwork.org. Uh, bear in mind, too, that um, the media outreach stuff is just one piece of what we do. A lot of what we do is walking with people and answering questions and connecting them with others who are in similar circumstances and and have similar questions. And uh, we do a lot of that in our online community, which is at community.chnetwork.org. That's a free uh, group. It's full of um, people who are in these kinds of um, headspaces. And we'd love to help you out if that's you. And if you want to support our work, um, we have uh, ways that you can give one time, or especially if you want to help by becoming an, an, a monthly supporter through our Compass program, go to chnetwork.org slash donate. Kenny Burchard, Ken Hensley, thank you so much. Have a wonderful Good day. Good to see you two again. Yeah. God bless you. Have yeah, a great Yeah, great morning. to see you guys. I'm Matt Swaim. Next time around, who knows what will happen on On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. Goodbye.